Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj Show. So as always, this is not only a podcast for medical geeks out there. This is a podcast for everyone. Yes, it's about learning, but it's also about wellness. It's about being nice. It's always about being yourself. But because this is my podcast, I get to ask my favorite friends and guests and colleagues and doctors to come on the show and to make all of us smarter. And today we do have a special guest. Um, I don't know if many of you guys know this, but I had the opportunity to be on a TV show called Chasing the Cure. And I actually convinced one of my colleagues from Chasing the Cure to come on the show. And this is going to be Dr. Sheila Sani. But as always, I got to give the, the background. So bear with me. I know, Sheila, you're listening. You can just uh, listen to me while I uh, flatter you right here. So Dr. Sani is an interventional cardiologist and director of the Women's Heart Program at Sani Heart Center, part of Hackensack Meridian Health Medical Group in Clark, New, Jer New Jersey. She is affiliated with Hackensack Meridian Health in New Jersey and Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. She graduated summa cum laude, bragging all the time, you know, from Georgetown <laughs> University School of Nursing and Health Studies and received her medical degree from Georgetown University School of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York and her fellowship in cardiovascular diseases and interventional cardiology at David Geffen School of Medicine. Oh, it's UCLA. You know, everyone, Dr. Raj is USC all the way, but Dr. Sani is nice. It's okay where she served as a chief fellow. She's an active member of American College of Cardiology Women in Cardiology Committee and the Society of Coronary Angiography and Interventions Women in Innovations Committee. Her clinical interests include prevention, lipid management, women's heart disease, high-risk complete revascularization, and radial interventions. She has been a pioneer in the use of social media for cardiovascular disease education, patient awareness, and advocacy. Dr. Sani regularly appears in the media. She most recently appeared as a physician expert on TBS and TNT's groundbreaking medical series, what I just mentioned, Chasing the Cure. And that was a show, and I'm already tearing up because that was such a great show, as a platform to crowdsource a diagnosis for patients with unsolved medical mysteries. And with that said, Sheila, thank you for being with us today. Raj, thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor to be on your podcast. I'm so proud of you for everything you're doing to inspire and enthuse the medical community. We're all really lucky to have you. Thank oh, you. Wow. You, you know, no one can see this, but I'm blushing a little bit. I know I'm brown, but my red, my skin's getting a little redier. So Sheila, this is all about you today. So um, the first on the five, six questions are to get to know each other, meaning that my audience wants to know who you are, you know? So um, when I forgot the most important reason why you're here today, Sheila, it February is, well, Sheila, you tell me, what is February? It's heart month. It's a yeah. whole month dedicated to heart disease awareness. And for so long, heart disease was thought of as a man's disease, but it's not. It's also a woman's disease. So we really look to February as the time for self-love, not just about Valentine's Day hearts, but about <laughs> your own heart and recognizing that it's your number one threat, man or woman. Well said, well said. And we're going to get, uh, don't worry, I got all the, the medical questions for you about that coming up. But let's start off with like some simple ones to kind of get our feet wet a little bit. Um, so, hey, Sheila, where were you born? Where did you do your undergrad and what was your major in undergrad? 
I was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, and spent most of my life life growing up in Rumson, New Jersey, which is right at the start of the Jersey Shore, not the one that you see on television, um, but very much uh, love New Jersey, and that's really where I came back to practice. But I did the majority of my training on the East Coast, so I went to undergrad at Georgetown. I was at the School of Nursing and Health Studies, where I had a very nice time focusing on sciences that were focused on human science. So that was my major. I was also an art history minor. Okay. So, you know, we finally get to college and Georgetown is awesome. I mean, way to go, you know, and you know what I love about you is you're not snooty. Like some of those Georgetown people, they get really snooty sometimes, (laughs) you know, but I mean, was your major a traditional, I want to be a doctor major, this health sciences thing, or did you not know what you wanted to be? when you're an undergrad? So I knew what I wanted out of my undergraduate career. So we should really back up because I think that I started to really focus on my professional goals right at the transition of eighth grade and ninth grade. And so when I took AP biology as a freshman in high school and I dissected that fetal pig, (laughs) that's when I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Like, that's what I knew. And I remember, I'll never forget, I was learning about salivary amylase and digestion. And I got so excited about how amylase breaks down carbohydrates and starches in your <laughs> mouth. And I was talking about it at lunch. And, you know, I always really liked physiology. And then as I was choosing my schools, I loved that Georgetown had a school of nursing and health studies. So I focused on the health studies aspect okay. because I I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I loved that they were, you could be a health studies major and major in human science. So I didn't have to take biology. I could take human biology and pathophysiology and pharmacology. What I learned later is I was basically signing up for mini med school, (laughs) which was, you know, stressful. But at the same time, I probably would have been stressed either way. I was very focused on my career But the benefit of being a health studies human science major was that I learned and I got exposed to the cardiac cycle very early. (laughs) And that was when the world opened, the lights flashed. I saw the Wiggers diagram and I just, that was it. I remember I drew it in different colors, highlighters, and I just, the idea that the heart as a pump can do so much. It houses its own electrical activity. And I was only a sophomore in college, but I knew right then and there that I loved it, that I really wanted to be a cardiologist. And I wanted to see this through. I was lucky enough. I got into Georgetown's early assurance program. Mm -hmm. So sophomore year, the summer between sophomore and junior year, I applied. And I was selected and I was exempt from the MCAT. So I was accepted to Georgetown early for medical school. And I got to focus my second half of undergraduate on my art history minor and studying the role of art therapy in cancer patients. Man, so I got, well, number one, that means you must have been a top-notch smarty because that combination (laughs) undergrad med school thing, very few universities offer. I know USC offers it, but it's hard to get into, you know? And that kind of makes sense because, you know, I was interviewing one of my other buddies and they did a similar combination. You got, you must really know what you want because, you know, I mean, let me play the cultural card here. You know, one thing that me and you have in common that we're, we're two of the the brownest people around town, you know, and (laughs) I got to, if you were to put me on the spot and say, Raj, why were you a doctor? I don't know. Maybe it's because my Indian relatives were going to kind of beat me up if I didn't become a doctor and, or maybe all the other Indian relatives are gossiping that Raj is not going to be a doctor because he's always goofing off. Um, was there some cultural stress? Cause I know you're surrounded by doctors. Your family's like beyond smart. And, um, was there some, be honest, I'm your bud. I'm your, I'm your guy. Was there some stress culturally to be a doctor? The storyline of me wanting to become a doctor is very genuine. But the only thing I could say, there there was no cultural stress. I think that every, my little sister became a dentist and my older sister became a psychologist. So we (laughs) naturally like, you know, health studies and um, helping other humans. I think that's a part of, you know, maybe the Sani girl gene, but Mm -hmm. my grandfather, who was a military physician in India, came here and in the 
late seventies and used to always ask me, Sheila, when are you going to become a doctor? (laughs) And uh, the beautiful part of the story is that his voice is always with me. He missed my medical school application acceptance by six months. Uh, He passed away with pancreatic cancer, but I know very sad, but um, he was the, he is somebody who I really believe wanted to see that through for me. But other than that, there was no other cultural pressure. And I would really encourage, you know, South Asians who feel that pressure. There are millions of careers out there. We shouldn't feel that pressure because, Raj, the truth is Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be doing what you're doing unless you loved it. And same with me. Right. So I think that's the key. You've got to love what you do. So then you won't work a day. So after this interview, I'm going to thank my dad for locking me in the closet and making me study. (laughs) I'm just joking. Yeah, I didn't do that. But (laughs) dads, I mean, is your dad and mom like the luckiest parents? I mean, what exactly did they do to get a dentist, psychologist, and a cardiologist? I mean, what did they do? Is there special potions and prayers? Do they put like sugar cubes in front of the (laughs) elephant a lot or something? How, How did they do that? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I would say that my dad definitely took a lot of pressure off of us. In medical school, he always told me, Sheila, P equals MD. Can you please take it easy? And even my little sister, you know, going to dental school wasn't enough. Graduating from the top three, third dental school in America wasn't enough at Tufts. She had to go to UPenn and become a periodontist. So I think that it's something about us seeing our immigrant parents, how hard they worked, that work ethic was ingrained in us. And we, my mom really valued education for us. She never spoke to me about, you know, who are you dating? When are you going to get married? When are you going to start to have children? She really focused on valuing our education and our careers. And I think that Slowly, that led to us creating our own set of goals and our own aspirations and dreams. You know, my little sister likes to equate her field as really the cardiology of dentistry. It's male dominated, it's difficult. I look at the stuff she does and I'm like, oh my goodness, you're an oral surgeon. This is crazy. <laughs> but um, I think that a lot of it was self inflicted. We, but I think there's that natural feeling you want to make your parents proud. Yeah. Oh, 100, 100%. You know, for me, I like what you said. I mean, my, my dad's from Calcutta, India. He was poor, poor, poor. They did everything for me. I'm sure your folks did everything for you. I would have really messed up if I didn't do something good in general, you know? <laughs> but let me ask you a med school question. So give me the, the classic best memory, best moments in med school. And then tell me what's one of the toughest, worst things about med school. So people, I have a lot of med students that listen to this. So give me a good thing and give me a bad thing. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to start with actually the bad thing. Okay. Um, and I think it was more, so I went to a very difficult med school. Georgetown yeah. was very difficult. Um, they did not have a pass fail system. And I think that the pass fail system would have been very psychologically beneficial. I remember memorizing minutia just to try to get an honors And deep down inside, I should have been focusing on studying from those high yield books and just focusing on my step scores. I think that I I see benefits in going straight through, but I also see benefits in having some level of break or life experience. I think I was suffering with a lot of stress in medical school, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of imposter syndrome. Medical school was extremely humbling. I graduated top of my class. And my experience in medical school wasn't, you know, that transition wasn't exactly the same. The way you have to study, the amount of information that's being thrown at you. And I really encourage, you know, I hope administrators are listening to this because the way that we teach needs to change. We need to approach medicine a lot more holistically and start to build a lot of those skill sets much early on to allow our physicians who are suffering from burnout to be more balanced because it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think that um, that's something that if I could talk back to myself and see that girl who was grabbing that fourth cup of coffee and sad because she can't get through all the the pre-notes for tomorrow's lecture, I would tell her to hold herself and to tell herself it's going to be okay (laughs) because it's a very long road, you know? And I think that that's the wisdom I have now 
And it's easier said when you have a road of accomplishments. It's harder when you're trying to get to the finish line and you, you still feel that I need to graduate. But my dad was right. P equals MD. And um, <laughs> I should have just kept that in mind. So I think like, you know, listen to yourself and and it's okay to say, I really need to take a break or um, I need to rethink the way that I'm thinking about myself. I remember my friends telling me, well, Sheila, take it easy. It's Saturday. And I say that to myself now. I say that to myself now, maybe eight, you know, 12 years later. Um, but one of the best memories I have of medical school, besides some of my incredible, really dear friends who are just at my wedding about a year and a half ago, um, is that Georgetown valued treating the whole person. So we have a motto, a Jesuit motto, Cura Personalis, treating the whole person. And I already had a taste of that when I was working with cancer patients, but I absolutely loved that we were put into the hospital setting as first years. I learned how to interview patients just for compassionate listening. And it was really when I started doing my away rotations as a fourth year, I recognized that I was different. A Georgetown medical student was different than other medical students. I had a capacity to understand, listen, and be empathetic that a lot of other physicians, when I was rotating at, at hospitals in New York, they hadn't seen. And also we had a very rigorous third year medical school clerkship training. So as a sub-I in my fourth year, I was seeing as many patients as my intern. Wow. So I was a very strong medical intern beginning at Mount Sinai. And I'm very grateful for that. That was a very good memory. No, and I, you know, just the comment in general for the listeners, I think that you, you nailed it, Sheila. I mean, a couple of things are changing now is, you know, USMLE step one is now pass fail. They're not right. doing the USMLE step two clinical skills. They're encouraging more, you know, patient care, hands-on in the earlier parts of med training. It's just, you know, it, it's a shame that it's not going to affect us right now, but the things that you're yeah. commenting on, I think they're slowly making that change. You know what I mean? So, right. you know, you after med school, you need to make the decision what to go into. And, you know, for listeners, you could be a surgeon like ob You could do the road, radiology, opto, anesthesia, <laughs> you know, stay on the road, you know. Um, I mean, why internal medicine? You know, you probably could have gotten into any of those I just mentioned. Why, why internal medicine? Well, I knew that I wanted to be a cardiologist since college. And I think right. that, you know, I, I used my third year very strategically. So because I knew I was already focused on medicine, I did it a little bit later after I had my hands wet with OB, peds, surgery, and I got that out of the way. And I knew it when I got to medicine that this was what I wanted. Okay. But to solidify that, I did focus on cardiology electives in my fourth year. <laughs> and really, when I walked into the echo lab and I saw the two-dimensional image of the heart, you <laughs> You know, in parasternal long axis view, moving, and, I, and that was it. I was done. I I must have done four electives in cardiology. No, wait, three. I did one at Georgetown, one at Mount Sinai, and one at NYU. And then, just to make sure I wasn't biased, I did an elective in rheumatology. And I did love rheumatology. Yeah, my, my wife's so proud of you. <laughs> I know, but you know, I never really enjoyed injecting joints. So that's when I realized, yeah, cardiology is where it is. Yeah. Well, you know, you kind of led into my next two questions, but let me just kind of turn it around a little bit. So I mean, for those who don't know, um, Sheila's dad is an awesome cardiologist. I'm just going to assume he's pretty awesome. That's all the pictures. He has his own, <laughs> he, he started his own heart center. That's pretty impressive. How much of cardiology was that smile on your face and seeing the heart and echo versus, Hey, you know, Let's be honest, Sheila, it's pretty sweet where your dad can hand you the baton and say, take over this heart center called the Sani Heart Center. So was it a balance of both that made you a cardiologist or is it, you know what I mean? Can you kind of answer that one? Yeah, I have an, I have an amazing memory. I was a senior in high school and I wanted to see my dad cast, right? Okay. Cool. And he stuck the groin, you know, so when, when we cast for everybody who's lit listening, it's a, it's a coronary angiogram and it's a yep. percutaneous procedure. So we have to get access to the largest blood vessels in the body. And this patient, we couldn't do radial, um, or I don't even know if radial was being done in New Jersey at that time, because this was 2000. 
2001, 2001. Yeah. So radio oh, intervention yeah. started to, yeah. my father began them in New Jersey in 2003. So 2001, here I am in the fall senior. I drove myself to the hospital. He stuck the groin and I almost passed out. <laughs> when I saw the blood rushing, I, I, I don't know what happened. I remember him pouring me a glass of water when the case was done. I was getting really hot. <laughs> and after that, you know, I pursued that was high school. So then, you know, college and he knew I was interested in cardiology, but he had very little to do with asking me to do anything or, you know, he wanted me, I think he mentioned derm, endocrine. He used all of those, you know, I don't think that he was making gender stereotypes when he thought that <laughs> I, I would be better off in those roles. I think he knew that cardiology brought with it you know, a bag of responsibilities yeah. and, you know, thunderstorms that he might not want his daughter to experience. Right. And what was interesting is that when I was younger, I used to go to the nursing homes with my mother and I used to, she would dress me up, you know, she, we with three girls in the house. So she had to pull one away and it was usually me. And I loved seeing older patients. I liked chronic air. So medicine really jigged with me. I liked the longevity of seeing the patient from start to finish, you know, through the hospital admission and then back in your office, the journey of my father. So as I would go to conferences as a med student, he was listening. He was like, we were looking at, I remember when the syntax trial came out, we were talking about (laughs) it, you know, stenting and surgery head to head, New England Journal of Medicine. And this was throughout the, you know, he knew when I was at Mount Sinai, one of the top coronary labs in the nation, probably the world, he knew I loved it. But at that time, he was really excited about cardiac imaging. And I got excited about cardiac imaging. (laughs) And I went to UCLA wanting to be a cardiac imager. And I did, I must have scrubbed 64 transesophageal echoes, thinking I was going to be like an imager for Taver and mitral (laughs) clip. And let me tell you, Raj, when I would go, speaking about like stress and nervousness about when you put so much pressure on yourself, when I would go to intubate the patient with the probe, every now and I I was like one for two, you know, I I would be like, I would get, you know, I, I would really want it to go well. And sometimes the patient, it's a difficult procedure. You know, you have to get the patient to relax and sedate them enough, lidocaine them enough in the back. But when I walked into the cath lab, I mean, I was getting the sheath in before the attending walked in. I was so comfortable. I was so comfortable. I was so happy. I was so confident. And I didn't care yeah. about it. I was like, oh, yeah, it's cat, you know, and that this is awesome. At the end of my first year, one of my attendings was like, are you sure you don't want to do this? Because you've got great hands. Nice. And that's when I took a step back and I was like, wait a second. And I was doing a rotation in CTMRI. Okay. That's when I realized advanced imaging is a lot of work with advanced software. Yeah. And I'm not a computer person. Yep. So I need to really be thinking about what I'm doing in my career. And all of a sudden, Providence fell suit. I switched out of imaging. I moved into the cath lab as a second year fellow. And then I jumped on my way to a really rigorous CAF con- like conference national meeting. And that's after seeing those live cases, I knew I could do it. <laughs> no, I knew I, it was what I wanted to do. Man. No, and it kind of answered my second question was why interventional? And it, you know what? And I love the fact that you actually explored non-invasive things. I think sometimes people forget the, the CHF specialist, the, the, the medical cardiologist. They're just as important because... Intervention is pretty cool, though, and I'm sure nothing beats the feeling of opening up a clogged artery, draining a pericardiosynthesis, and there's so many things you guys do, so I I am very impressed. So let me kind of switch gears a little bit, and- uh, I just wanted to to add one thing. I know that was like a long-winded response, but about my father. So I made my father come to the TCT meeting with me. This was October 2014. Okay. And- in terms of, you know, he was all, once I told him that I wanted to do it, he was all about it. But I remember looking at the live cases and I looked at him and I said, dad, daddy, do you think I I could do it? (laughs) And, you know, you kind of, you ask your father, do you think I'm going to actually be able to do this? And he looked at me and he said, yes, beta and beta means child in Mm -hmm. Hindi. And that was when I was like, okay, all right. I needed to know that my dad, 
no can think I'm going to do this, you know? And, and then, so I think that it's in the end, it's a really beautiful story and, and, and it's incredible, but the passing of the baton definitely didn't happen. Like I was, you know, from the beginning, it was like a longer journey. Well, and I really think it was beautiful for people who are listening. There is a picture and I feel like I'm a stalker now that you just put on your <laughs> Instagram where it's like you and your dad, you know what I'm telling you? You just received, and it was such a beautiful pick. And he's so, you can tell that smiley ass in his face that he's like, this is my daughter. She's the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay. Let, let me switch a little gears. Cause I, I got to save some time for all these, uh, medical questions. So let's talk about something that we share together. Let's talk about chasing the cure. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't even know the answer to this. So how did you get plugged into that show? What was, what was the story behind you getting there? Cause remember when we first showed up, there were like all these people there in the room. So for those, it was like, I remember one of the first times I met you, they invited me over and there was like, what, like six, seven, eight people, but there's only like kind of four spots in the show and everyone's kind of feeling each other out. And you were very, very nice and sweet to me. So what was your story? How did you get there? I think I was an 11th hour find. I mm-hmm. um I was contacted pretty late. I was contacted in the spring, so I got my first email end of March and I started doing video interviews sometime around April. And I met Aunt, the next thing I know, I'm meeting Ann Curry Memorial Day weekend, so end of May. And then they want another meeting for producers <laughs> in the time war. And I remember because this all coincided with my upcoming wedding. And I was I had a tasting um, at the Pierre. So I, I worked it out on a Friday. But I was really, after talking to one of our colleagues, Vaughn, who told me he was interviewing since August, I recognized that I was found by Anne. Nice. And yeah, she found me and found me. And Anne was looking for a real doctor who was in the community. And she found me through my social media work. I had built a digital presence. Yeah. So she had searched for a cardiologist. And, you know, this story is kind of secondhand. So we can always vet it through her. But she found me. She was looking for something unique. And she really wanted, um, she wanted a doctor that was working in the community. That's great. Yeah. She was very, very moved by the practice that I had joined with my father and the kind of patients that I was treating. And a lot of the work that I had done in the digital space to help grow the understanding of interventional cardiology and get cardiologists on Twitter, it really worked with what they were trying to do with uh, chasing the cure. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, I remember when I first met you, you did some media stuff, but not an overabundance of it. So this is kind of like the first time like you were on the couch. We used to sit on the couch and practice. And in the beginning, you know, because I was very fortunate to have some media practice before I was like, whatever, I'm on the couch. But I like to stare at everyone else to see what they're doing. Um, what was the hardest part of being a community cardiologist doing your, your doctor thing, which you do great. And suddenly trying to be on a TV, what was the hardest transition there for you? Just knowing that your, my credibility is all I have. And that once you are put on national television, you've got to be extremely careful about what you're going to say and what you're going to support. And I think that we were really incredibly lucky to have Anne backing us up. She listened to us. She was our voice. She supported anything that we said that we didn't feel comfortable with. And I don't know if we, if in media, we'll ever get that same experience again, but I do know that having met her and having worked on that show, I know what I can advocate for. And I'm a much stronger media presence now having done Chasing the Cure. Um, But the other thing was just getting really used to a lot of those lights and it was a live show. I mean, when people, (laughs) when I tell people that we did this live they can't believe it. I mean, it's so different now. The experience I have working with people, moderating it, it was it was a high. It was incredible to work with the best of the best, doctors like you, like James, like Vaughn. I I loved it. It reignited so much passion and love that I have for both media and medicine. 
You know, I would say if you were to, to, to switch the question around, one of my favorite things to do on that show was, remember we did this thing where we discussed the patients in like a boardroom? There was like a, yeah. a board. Like, <laughs> we just goof off so much behind the scenes. Like, I remember Bon was always like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he, he was always like, drawing he like a certain food and we always used to tease him about it. It was, like, Oh my gosh. He so, was so funny. And you had all the clinical niblets. You were like the mini <laughs> med school professor with the clinical niblets. Well, I mean, that whole thing w- was super fun. And, you know, I kind of warned you, I'm going to ask you this one. So, Hey, forgiveness. If you don't remember any names or anything like that, but, um, is what was your favorite case? You know what I mean? I mean, I already know mine. Mine was when I got really a big chance to deal with a big pulmonary case. So, you know, the last one I did when they filmed it at USC, yeah. that just was very special to me. Was there one that was really special? They're all, they're all amazing. Anyone listening, you're all amazing, but which one was your, your, your kind of favorite one? You know, I'm really grateful that we were able to air the case of Kelly who had chest discomfort, but it was extremely vague. And she really did not have a thorough synchronized cardiac workup. Mm -hmm. And we were able to give her that. And I feel that, you know, both not only helping her, but also just getting that knowledge out that women don't present like men, that, you know, cardiac disease needs to be ruled out efficiently. You can't just start doing it in silos. We need to do the workup and we need to complete it so we can rule out heart disease, which is a woman's number one threat. And she was not aware of that. She also wasn't, I'll never forget, she was talking about her legs. And so I take care of a lot of women who have leg swelling. And a lot of physicians don't think about doing venous mapping, diagnosing venous stasis and reflux. And I also brought that to her attention. So Mm -hmm. being able to, you know, share the case with a cardiologist from Cedar sinai discuss it with some faculty at UCLA regarding the perfect imaging test for her, and really getting to dive in deep of what microvascular disease is, Mm -hmm. which which is when women have disease in the smaller blood vessels of their heart and it creates what can be a very vague chest pain syndrome. Yeah. That was really something I enjoyed. Sheila, do you, do you remember that for some reason, I always remember that when our patients on the show that we discussed, some of their issues, they're, they're always stuck on steroids for some reason. Was that like a big yes. thing? Like, I think my recommendation is get off the steroids for some reason. <laughs> that was like the- Everybody no- wasn't. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And I, oh I, my I, I can't tell them how to get off of them, but I think that will yeah. solve all their problems, you know? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to switch gears again. So now you're going to be Sheila, the cardiologist. Is that cool? All right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, like you said, you know, it's going to be, this is a very special month for heart awareness. I want to focus on heart disease in women. I'm going to ask questions about understanding the symptoms and risk factors. So number one for Dr. Sani. So what are the symptoms for a heart attack in women? The symptoms for a heart attack in women are very different from the symptoms of a heart attack in men. So men tend to get that very typical Hollywood heart attack with crushing chest pain, but women don't always get chest pain. In fact, the majority of the time women are presenting with shortness of breath, but sometimes it can be even more subtle. It could be a new onset migraine headache, some upper back discomfort. It could be nausea, heartburn, and just overall not feeling well. And that's why it's really important for women to recognize that anything that comes on in their body that's new, that's either between the navel or the nose that comes on with either physical or emotional exertion needs to get checked out immediately. Nice answer. Oh my God. So this kind of leads into uh, our second medical question, which is going to be, well, risk factors, right? I think we all want to know about risk factors and, you know, are there some specific risk factors for women? And because I think if you just put me on the spot and say, what are your risk factors in general, Raj, for men and women, you got to say what diabetes, Mm -hmm. hypertension, cholesterol, but is there something, those are all important. You could elaborate on that. Are there some special ones for, for women that you want to mention besides those? Yes. And just to complete that list, you know, tobacco use. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, it's so important to remember tobacco use, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, family history, and age. Okay. But 
women are also at risk for heart disease. In fact, it begins as early as pregnancy. Pregnancy is a woman's first stress test. If you've suffered high blood pressure, whether it was just high blood pressure or preeclampsia or eclampsia in your pregnancy, you've quadrupled the risk of early onset heart disease. And same with gestational diabetes. Even if your blood pressure and your diabetes normalize after delivery, you have suffered vascular changes that need to get checked out and actually put you at risk. So that's first and foremost, all my pregnant women who are listening, if you know anybody that's been having gestational diabetes or high blood pressure in pregnancy, get them to a heart doctor early so we can get their risks assessed. But the other thing is women also with autoimmune disorders. So stuff that your wife takes care of oh, you all remember, the time. You remembered. <laughs> yes. The rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, these conditions are naturally being so inflammatory also inflame the the endothelial lining and the blood vessels and predispose to heart disease early and make the like make other compounding risk factors more atherogenic similarly women who have had breast cancer haven't haven't gotten chemotherapy radiation to the chest they're also at risk for heart disease as are women who go through menopause and women who have depression anxiety generalized anxiety, psychosocial stress. This is a very big risk factor for women oh. presenting with heart attacks. I, I wouldn't have guessed that whatsoever. Now, now I'm going to put you on the spot again. You, you got to be careful. So some of my listeners may not know what does it mean to have preeclampsia, eclampsia. These are very specific OB-GYN terms. I mean, uh, I'll help you out, but I'll let you go first. I mean, do you know what, can you explain to my audience what is preeclampsia, yes. eclampsia? So Preeclampsia is is basically, it's a vascular condition where your placenta starts to clamp down and raise your blood pressure. And it's a specific blood pressure cutoff. But what matters the most about preeclampsia is the presence of proteinuria in the urine. So what the way that it would, you know, you would start to feel uncomfortable when you go in, your blood pressure is going to be elevated. Typically, you know, systolic is greater than 160. We see the diastolic range greater than 100. But then we do do the urine dipstick and we see the presence of proteins in the urine. And even if you don't meet that cutoff, we still, the presence of protein in the urine is a risk factor for heart disease. So our, our OB-GYN doctors, are they doing a good job in letting the patients know like, Hey, you got this, please follow up down the lines. Or are those risk factors in decades from now, or are things that need to be addressed soon after the pregnancy? So, you know, ACOG is really trying to work with with the ACC because what happens to a lot of women is that they lose their insurance after they deliver the baby. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest issues. We also see postpartum preeclampsia happen as well. So I've had a mix of both some women who have gotten lost and other women who are are still able to keep up, but we're working on this on, on a policy level to help, you know, um, access to care be extended so women can get appropriate treatment after their delivery. But yeah. sometimes it's just forgotten. So yeah. it really depends on if you're practicing at USC, which probably has MFM, high-risk pregnancy, yeah. you're probably going to be okay. But I'm noticing that in the community, a lot of my 50-year-old women, I ask about their pregnancy. Yeah. And and I document and that and then I treat them more aggressively because I know that their endothelium is not normal. Now, I mean, now you gave me really dorky because I'm, I'm loving this. So <laughs> also uh, for my audience, eclampsia is just having seizures. Everything Dr. Sani said, plus, unfortunately, you have some seizures. But I'm just asking it randomly. Um, med students know about, you know, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Is that something that's real? Have you seen it before? And I mean, uh, this is kind of a heart failure because of the pregnancy. Is it right. kind of like something just resolves its own? Or if you have it, is that your new heart the rest of your life. Can you comment a little bit about that? Oh, peripartum cardiomyopathy yeah. is very scary. Okay. It's very, very scary. Have you seen and, it? Um, yes, I have. I've seen okay. women have to get transplanted because of it. Oh, Jesus. Oh my God. So every case is different, you know, when it starts to present, but once you are developing heart failure in pregnancy, you need to go to an advanced heart disease special heart failure specialist. Okay. So because you need to know, you need to have access to support devices based on what's going to happen. And you need a very high risk team. So you need access to cardiac and anesthesia, high risk OB. And depending on what happens, 
obviously the safety of the mother and the safety of the baby is first and foremost and oh, management and discussion yeah. of this would, would really, you know, ACE inhibitors, which are a classic medication can't be used uh, in pregnancy, <laughs> right? So you've got to get the baby out safely and then you've got to deal with the mother's cardiomyopathy. And depending on how severe it is, obviously if she's in shock or some cardiogenic, you know, she's developing cardiogenic shock or failure, you're going to have to start thinking about a support device such as LVAD or maybe even transplant. But if the woman is okay and the heart is just weak, let's say the ejection fraction is 40%, you're going to put her on guideline-directed medical therapy and you're going to wait and see if the if the heart can recover but the discussion of the second pregnancy oh is very high risk once yeah. you've had peripartum cardiomyopathy with your first pregnancy you have a predisposed higher risk of having it in the next pregnancy and we usually don't encourage repeat pregnancy let me ask i mean this is kind of a, an odd question but you know another thing that worries me or patients are people who have high blood pressure in the pulmonary vessels. I think we call that pulmonary hypertension. So my question to you is, you know, here at USC, we kind of fight with the cardiologists of who should be the master of pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension to be precise. Um, Do you take care of pulmonary hypertension patients? And who do you think is the real master? Is it us, the pulmonologists? Are we the best or is it the cardiologist? I think the best team is the one that works in harmony with each other. So I think uh, I've seen some institutions do it really well. And uh, I'm lucky to have trained at both of them in Mount Sinai, UCLA, probably USC. It's really nice when you have a cardiologist that specializes in right heart cath. Yep. Not every cardiologist does a right heart cath the same way. And <laughs> to all of my interventionalists out there, to all my cardiologists out there, and my heart failure specialists who are listening, you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's just there's nuances and subtleties, and we need to respect niches. You know, mm-hmm. I'm an interventional cardiologist. I love radial intervention. I love complex coronaries. I mm-hmm. love women in heart disease. Mm-hmm. Is pulmonary hypertension my bread and butter, especially being in the community? No. Okay. And I have no shame in doing a great right heart cath, but where I'm existing in my practice, yeah. I would send to a pulmonologist. I mean, oh, because, nice. Yes, absolutely. Especially, you know, when, when, when I start thinking about the who classification yeah. and the management and the different use of the vasodilator, we yeah. do the pulmonary reactivity testing. Yes. In the cath lab. Okay. But at the same time, I think the concerted management, when you start taking care of patients with ILD, yeah. you need your pulmonologist on board, managing that patient oxygen levels. So for me, I think it works best when you have a really great, either a heart failure physician who's doing your right heart cath, who is looking at the RV, you know, has access to cardiac MRI to really look at the right ventricle, the pulmonary pressures. Um, I did a lot of research on that when I was at Sinai and then works with the pulmonologist. I think that is one of the most beautiful relationships in managing pulmonary hypertension. No, I, good answer. Very PC, no, completely correct on that answer. (laughs) Uh, All right. So back back to the heart again, here we go for for women. So this is actually one of my, one of my, you have a bunch of fans. A lot of my med students just adore you on the show. Yeah. So, um, they want me to ask you, is heart disease something only older women should worry about? What do you think? No, no, it, it's never too young. I had an Instagram post on this recently. Oh, it's never okay. too young to begin starting to be also, Raj, we're seeing an epidemic of heart attacks in younger women in their mid forties. And it's all, you know, the epidemiologic data is all pointing to uncontrolled risk factors of obesity, diabetes. And therefore the decisions that we're making in our twenties and thirties, they're affecting us. And that's why it's never too soon to begin a heart healthy lifestyle. Nice answer. Now I'm going to take a a small detour from women. Just ask you, I'm going to do one of my own questions, you know, um, with all the COVID stuff going on, you know, people always still ask me, what is the number one killer of both men and women in the United States? And I always say it's, it's heart disease. So, you know, there's a big question that occurred this past year, which is where did all the heart attacks go? Sheila, are people not having heart attacks anymore during the pandemic? Where do they go? 
It's a very, very, it's ear. It, it was an eerie question. You know, the emergency rooms were empty. Yeah. And so many patients were scared. The amount of phone calls that we got of yeah. patients having chest pain that didn't want to go, that didn't want to be seen. I was blessed to do two, a few. I did a lot of STEMI call during COVID. I had three real STEMI. Wow. And I'm so proud of those patients. But even I'll never forget one of my patients who I just recently saw he's doing great. I remember when we finished his stent, he said, I want to leave. I don't want to be on the floor with the COVID patient. And I was like, you're not going to be. You're not going to be. Please, you need to stay. You had a massive heart attack. And I think that's a real fear. We made a lot of pushes both Sky and ACC with national campaigns to encourage patients to get seen in a timely fashion for their symptoms. It is still the number one um, threat. And we really need our patients presenting to the hospitals. It was a very scary thing what we saw. And, you know, uh, earlier in the pandemic, I mean, much, much earlier, there was an article out there. And I I think it may have been some kind of cardiology guideline. Maybe you could help me without this, that they were recommending doing lytics, I mean, blood, you know, thinner breaker downers instead of stenting because of less exposure to patients and, and stuff. Um, did you see that in your business and in New Jersey that maybe you're like, you know what, I would stent you, but right now I'm just going to push to lytic instead. Can you comment on that? Yeah, there was that paper and it was, you know, it was very impressive to see all of those leaders between ACC and Sky really come together to get that paper out really for community labs that didn't know what to do. So we were lucky in the hack and sex system at JFK Medical Center, where I do a majority of my cases to really change the filtration system. We were able to get anesthesia on board. So we were able to intubate the majority of patients in the emergency room, bring them safely so that we were able to limit exposure. Um, But there were, so the, the, the challenge then is, yes, STEMIs got brought to the lab. We, and we did not use lytics. So we took care of STEMIs. We treated them Mm -hmm. as we did, but you did see a lot of troponin elevation that did not need to be brought to the lab. Okay. And that's because COVID-19 creates a myocarditis. Well, well, it creates well, yeah. a, yep. you know, so, so that was, that was something that had to get managed. And I think we were lucky that scary and lucky at the same time, anticoagulation is being used in our COVID patients, right? Because we see it's a thrombotic cascade. We were learning that all on the fly yeah. back in March, but now we know that much more clearly um, a year later. So I think people did need that paper because they were at a loss. Yeah. They didn't have the resources. We didn't have the PPE. We needed help. And I think it really speaks to the cardiology community yeah. about how fast they can get the data out. And really, they were a force to really show that, you know, we're going to do conferences virtually and we're going to get this paper out and we needed answers. And they yeah. really tried to help as many physicians as they could. All right, because you answered that really good, you get another COVID question. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, no, I told you I'm just gonna kind of wing it because you, you I love your answers. Um, you know, I think we all were humbled, you know, during this pandemic because every time I open my mouth, like two days later, I misspoke because things are always changing, right? So do you remember when like there was a no-go on ACE inhibitors? Like they're like it's yes. ACE inhibitors, and for my med students, I know. There were ACE inhibitors. That's like one of your go-to drugs in, in, in certain, you know, coronary artery disease cases, heart failure cases. Did you um, have patients call you up and say, hey, let's stop this medication? Did that affect your, your, your management in any way? Yeah. I mean, there was a, before all those, um, you know, there were a number of papers that finally came out that consolidated the data and said that it makes no difference. But there was a week where I was really getting nervous. And there was a, there was a week where I convinced myself, okay, I can keep my patient on it, but I can't start it new. Yep. There were a lot of patients that called there was there, you know, when I think back to that early time, there was just unsolvable, unquenchable fear of making the wrong decision of what, 
you know, what was being said was that if you're on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, you have an increased likelihood of being more receptive to the infection and that the infection would be more infectious and dangerous for you. It was very scary. It was a very difficult question. But after reading enough data, I was able to safely keep my patients on the medication. And like you said, I lean on ACE inhibitors, and I lean on ARBs all the time for blood pressure control, for heart failure. So it was a scary time, but I'm glad that, again, to the science community that we were able to clear up that there's absolutely no impact and we don't have to be worried. Totally. All right. Back to women. Back to women. All right. So I think this is an appropriate question now as we talk about risk factors. Does it only affect older women? So what can women do to reduce their risk of heart disease? Women need, so I have a really amazing fact. Okay. I want women and the young girls who are listening, tell your mothers, tell your sisters, tell your grandma, (laughs) risk factors really matter. So you've got to hashtag know your numbers, your blood pressure, your (laughs) cholesterol, your diabetes risk, and you've got to get the numbers from your doctor because the guidelines change. Don't let any doctor tell you, oh yeah, your blood pressure is fine. Oh yes, your cholesterol is fine. No, (laughs) get the exact number, get the top number, get the bottom number and get your cholesterol numbers because our guidelines change. And it's really important to know those specific numbers because if a woman does not develop a risk factor for heart disease before the age of 50, Mm -hmm. her lifetime risk of heart disease has now reduced to 8%. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I should put that as the title of our podcast, dude. Right. But if you have two or more risk factors at the age of 50, you now have a 50% lifetime risk. So if I told you, right, that like, if what you're doing in your 30s and 40s could impact the presence of high cholesterol, diabetes, and high blood pressure, and you could completely reduce your risk from 50% to 8%, who wouldn't want to sign up for a heart healthy lifestyle? (laughs) Who wouldn't want to sign up? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, that is, I want patients, I want everybody who's listening to recognize it is so easy. You know, I love telling my patients, you've got to eat clean, eat green, keep it lean. Oh, dude, that, you know, like phrases today. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but it's so true because we get so confused by diets. I mean, one of the best diets is the Mediterranean diet. It's been clinically proven to reduce the risk of heart disease. But breaking that down in a visual, you want to be eating good fats from nuts and avocado and olive oil okay. and portion control. Eat lean fish and lean meats and stick to whole grains. And it's important for women to know as they get older, right? After menopause, their cholesterol profile will change and and weight gain goes up. So women have to start to be attentive to portion control to keep their calories down and to make sure that they're getting enough exercise so that the weight stays the same. Uh, So this is great. So you set me up for my next question, which is, let's just kind of dive in a little bit further. Uh, So another question someone wanted me to ask you was about exercise. So I think the way they phrased it to me was to ask that no duh, do exercise. But I guess the question you want to focus on is, well, how much exercise should they be doing? And, you know, you always have these pictures of you jumping on the beach, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I had to tease you a little bit. Uh, What what exercises do you recommend? I also worked out every time we were doing the show on Chasing the Cure, by the way. Okay. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) So I love working out. I'm so happy for the person who asked this question. First of all, commit to a physical activity routine. Mm -hmm. Because once you commit to a physical activity routine, you're going to be way, it's going to be a predictor of avoiding waking. Okay. And set personal goals that are realistic. If you haven't had an exercise program in your life, I don't want you running a marathon tomorrow. <laughs> I want you stretching. Yep. This is about longevity. And the the, the real numbers, like if you want to go by guidelines, it's 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. So you could divide that up 30 minutes Monday okay. through Friday. 
But let's say you like to go to Orange Theory. Well, right now, you know, working out looks different right now. But yeah. if you are somebody that goes to gym, the gym with the mask on, or you're doing high intensity boot camps online, do an online program, 75 minutes of higher intensity exercise per week is what's clinically recommended to also keep your heart strong. But you can break it up in terms of intensities. Okay. And I really want to plug on steps. So a lot of us, you know, 10,000 steps, I got to get my 10,000 steps. 10,000 steps means you are very active. But even if you can get five to 7,000 steps, that also shows that you're moderately active. So Raj, I know you're busy today. You're in the hospital. If you can actually take steps in between seeing patients and go up and down, you know, from radiology to the OR to the sixth floor ICU, you're accumulating a lot of exercise in your day. And the preventive guidelines have shown that it's the cumulative um, addition of all the exercise that you do that really reduces risk. So we need to commend ourselves when we're active throughout our day. And we can do little tricks, you know, like I like to tell my patients when they're stuck inside, use the stairs, run up and down the stairs or park away from the grocery store and walk a little longer to get your steps in. I want to personalize it because people want to get to know you. So what is your, what is your go-to exercise with others? COVID stuff. I mean, I could tell the whole world. I'm kind of like a, the elliptical type of guy. I got to have my (laughs) TV. I got to have my headphones. Maybe I'm cheating a lot, but, uh, I want to know because they should look you up on social media. You are definitely in shape. What do you do, Sheila? Yeah. So I do a mix of um, cardiovascular work that is high intensity. So I really like to walk on an incline. And when the weather is nice, I go for like four mile walks, which really allow me to decompress, but there's a lot of hills. So that gets the whole posterior chain. The unique, we really have to value our lower body. So the lower body has a lot of muscle mass. And so the more you work, the more the the lower body, the more you're going to burn at rest. So I also make sure that I do a lot of strength and resistance training. I know a lot of women like to focus on their upper body, having tone arms, but honey's <laughs> got to get the swat squat thing because your lower body, it has so much more muscle mass and your heart rate's going to go right up. So I love doing squats. I love doing lunges. I love doing single leg work like isolation. So okay. single leg deadlifts. These are great exercises that keep my back strong and keep me feeling like I'm getting my a really good workout and I'm getting my heart rate up. Um, because the heavier, and you don't even have to lift that heavy, but it's really important to get that strength training in. My legs give me a lot of strength when I'm seeing patients, when I'm in the cath lab, wearing the heavy lead as well as upper back exercise. So I do a lot of rowing and spinning too, Mm -hmm. just to strengthen my back. Now, this is a, I don't know how you're going to answer this one, but, uh, one of another person who sent me a question for you. Uh, is asking about weight and it's kind of open-ended. So I'll let you kind of run with it. She wants to know what is a healthy weight? So I don't know, because I, I look at it, everyone's different. So do you not answer that one? What, what, what's a healthy weight? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, I, I do still go by BMI, but BMI okay. is not perfect. All right. Um, because you know, your weight you could be what the BMI muscle mass. Is, all that stuff. Because you know, yeah. So okay. BMI is body mass index. So mm-hmm. it's looking at your height and your weight, and then it's creating a parameter to then give you a what is de- deemed as a range, right? So overweight is typically, I believe, above 26 or 25. And so when you're in a healthy BMI, that usually encompasses the spectrum. But what BMI misses is what percentage of weight is fat and muscle. And there's no real good measure for that unless you really do it. This is getting like into the exercise physiology, but even getting an accurate assessment of muscle mass is very difficult, but we still do it by using, you know, hand sensors to get muscle mass, but a healthy weight, you know, start with BMI and be honest with yourself too. If you have, um, BMI also, I think underrepresents Asians. Okay. So certain ethnicities, 
Yeah, so certain ethnicities don't always get represented equally in terms of risk in the BMI, but it's important to have the discussion with your doctor. If you're concerned that you could be overweight, if things are not starting to fit, it's important to get checked out and your height and weight is the place to begin. All right. Well, two more questions. I'm going to throw one more fun one in there because uh, me, like I was telling you, you are in shape. So can you tell my audience what is your favorite naughty food to eat that you shouldn't eat, but you eat it? You know what I'm saying? They want to know that you're human. And what is your favorite (laughs) healthy food to eat? Oh my gosh. My favorite naughty food. Um, I can tell you what it is mainstream, and then I can tell you how I do it to make it a little bit less naughty. (laughs) I love chicken fingers and French fries. (laughs) I just love chicken fingers and French fries. So my favorite food, the way to do that, and we just did it um, for Super Bowl, is I love Trader Joe's breaded chicken, and I bake that. And then we do sweet potato fries, and we bake that too. Okay. Um, I also like making my own chicken cutlet. Um, but that would be my favorite guilty food. Like it. Um, <laughs> yes, so good. And um, my favorite healthy food is Mediterranean food, of course. Um, <laughs> and I, I was so happy because my husband planned our honeymoon in Greece. And he kept saying, Sheila, it's all your favorite food. So I love Met white Mediterranean fish like bronzino. And I love that with like just lemon and olive oil, black pepper. And I love eating it with like a fresh green. That's like my favorite food. But what's funny is the night that he proposed, he was going to order that. Right. And I said, Oh no, no, no. (laughs) We can have that any night. I go tonight. I want a hamburger. Like I want a cheeseburger with French fries because I am so like tonight is the happiest (laughs) night. And I want, to do it with like this guilty deep meal and i'll never forget the way the french fries came out in like a mini le crusade in this <laughs> restaurant in the west village in new york and you know so i think everything in moderation you know when you're gonna yeah. have a meal i um was just looking at the uh a book called mm-hmm. um why french women don't get fat oh I, or maybe, maybe the title is different <laughs> it's you know and basically the whole book is about exchanging your experience with food sure. and really enjoying your food and so i think it, at the end of the day eating should be intentional we should be aware you know raj when we were doing those <laughs> sessions at chasing the cure yes. we'd have these like faster lunches yes, but then did. we'd go out and we had a great meal and mm-hmm. i think that like it's so important to say where can you cut the calories and have a healthier salad and then enjoy a meal when you have a little bit more time and really make it memorable? No, totally. You know, no, I agree. And as we kind of start wrapping things up, the last women question I want to ask, you know, I think, you know, it really comes down to when I teach my students and residents and fellows, how does it change management? That's my, my big theme. So my question, my last women question for you, we're focusing on women in heart disease. Is there specific treatments for heart disease in women that are different in men? I know it's a hard one, but, you know, can you think about something more specifically that we do for women than we do for men with heart disease? Yeah. So one of the things we didn't, we, we didn't really touch on how women and men can have different pathology. So when a man presents with, with a heart attack, they tend, we tend to see more total occlusion of the blood vessel versus with women, we tend to see plaque erosion. Oh, in wow. fact, when you, when you look at the data, like you look at one of the largest trials of women who presented with heart disease, the Virgo trial, okay. there are a majority of women who present with acute coronary syndrome that do not have obstructive disease. So oh, what yeah. happened? Yeah. What, yeah. What so yeah. you go to the cath lab, you cath them, they're having an MI and there's nothing to fix. Wow. So a lot of people used to say, oh, you're fine. You didn't get a stent, no yeah. heart disease. Yeah. No, that is not true. What is happening is microvascular disease. Okay. And one of the medications, um, there's a slew of medications that really help. So when you have microvascular disease, your major highways are open, but the side streets are blocked, oh, right? Nice so traffic, there, yes, yes. So, you know, traffic slows down if the side <laughs> streets are blocked and the blood doesn't flow normally. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's a bit more in a stable condition, but in the heart attack setting, it's often plaque erosion. So okay. heart attacks are managed the same blockage or no blockage, stent or no stent. That's one thing. But if you have microvascular disease, I tend to use calcium channel blockers. They give a lot of 
arterial relaxation, as does Renexa. Renexa, also known as renolazine, works through sodium um, pathways at the myocardium and causes, you know, changes in calcium efflux and influx and relaxes the arterioles. And Renexa has been shown in one of the largest trials, Cormica, that you can actually improve quality of life in patients who were diagnosed with microvascular disease using these strategic medications. So these are medications that I lean on more in women. And just a plug for women also, women are not many men. And it's really important for doctors to recognize you can't blast them with, you can't blast a, a, like a tiny woman with a torvastatin 80 and (laughs) expect she's not going to have any side effects. No, I mean, come on. We've got to do things slowly. The guidelines are the guidelines, but as doctors, we need to get the patients on statin therapies very strategically using lower doses and, and get them up safely. And I often supplement with CoQ10 and vitamin D to really help with some of the statin side effects. That's important. A lot of women come to me and they're like, no, I was on a statin. And I was like, wait a second, what happened? And And then when they tell me those myalgias, those muscle aches, right? right. Oh, that's good. And you're dropping pearls left and right, you know? Um, (laughs) You know, I wanted to make sure this last one's not really a question. You answer that amazingly, you know, um, I just wanted to make sure you get a chance to promote anything. Like, can you just say your website or any of your handles or, you know, just what you're promoting, then, then I'll say goodbye to you. Go for it. Sure. Um, well, you know, for anybody who's listening in the East coast, I am accepting new patients and it's really easy to make an appointment at sonnyheartcenter.com. We have a great website where you can make appointments 24 seven and you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sheila Sani. I'm also on Twitter and I'd love to be a part of your healthcare journey. Oh, that was so sweet. You know, only for this one, I almost wish I could like put out the video because you always have this beautiful smile on your face. You're just so pleasant. And, you know, and most people I ask, why do you want to be a doctor, cardiologist? You can kind of smell the BS sometimes. You know what I mean? I've been doing a lot of interviews, but I mean, when you started talking about amylase in your mouth and carbohydrate digestion, I'm like, you're not joking, dude. Uh, you're the real deal. And, and I just want to say, I make sure it's, it's on the record. You're, you're just an amazing person. And, and Sheila, I, I truly think of you like a little sister. I really do enjoy working with you when I was on Chasing the Cure. You're just a, a big, bright, shiny light over there, you know? Thank you, Raj. I feel the same about you. And if I get some more cardiac stuff, do you think you mind coming back again and doing this again with me someday? I would love to. My honor. Thank you. You're welcome. And that is the Dr. Rod show for today. Catch you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm-hmm.